Our first Bible reading comes from Genesis 1, and we'll start at 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give, you, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And our second Bible reading comes from Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. For the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself, there is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than a burnt offering and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to think back to the last conversation you had with family or friends around the dinner table over a drink. I presume it went something like this. You caught up. How are you going? What's new? Then you started to talk about the latest Netflix series you're watching, the new restaurant, the COVID cases, the weather. Then perchance in that conversation, things turned the corner and went deeper. Maybe an ethical issue came up. Someone started talking about meaning or life or death. And you know it got deeper, right? Because people's tone changed. They got a bit quieter. They physically, you know, moved a different way. And probably even someone said, whoa, that went deep, right? And things got deeper. Now, chances are, because we're in Australia, probably someone at that moment made a joke or someone tried to steer the conversation back to a superficial topic, right? Because we're a bit uncomfortable in deeper, serious conversations. But they are important conversations to have, aren't they? We have a lot of conversations throughout the week, throughout the year. But often we don't have conversations that actually matter. And so our goal in Conversations That Matter is to do that, to talk about things that really matter to your life. Today, the question is, is there meaning to life? That is an important conversation to have, isn't it? 
And so we're going to wade deep, not stay in the shallow end. We're going to go wade deep for about 20, 25 minutes and see, is there meaning to life? We're going to look at three things. Firstly, who gives meaning? Secondly, why you mean something and not nothing? And then thirdly, what are you meant to do? So let's start with who gives meaning. I'm going to start with a statement that I don't think is controversial in the slightest, right? I think we'll all agree to it. But then I'm going to ask a question that is. So here's the statement. Every single person has dignity and value and worth, regardless of being a man or woman, able or disabled, the colour of your skin, orientation or financial status. I presume, with the end of building online, everyone agrees to that statement, right? I presume I'm not going to get any angry emails against that statement, right? But let me ask a controversial question. It's a small question. Every three-year-old asks it. Why? Why is that true? Why do we all believe that? Why is that self-evident? Now, it's a scary question to ask because it's one of the foundations of our society. It's like if someone said, hey, Have you ever looked at the foundations of your house, of your unit block? I don't know how stable they are. Let's go have a look, right? That's a scary exploration because you know if the foundations are unstable, the whole thing is. But it's an important question to ask why. One of the foundations in our society is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which recognises, and I quote, the inherent dignity of all members of the human family as a foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. A foundation, right? But interestingly, Jacques Maritain, who was instrumental in putting the uh, bill, to, the Human Rights Declaration together, says this: "We agree about the rights, but on the condition that no one asks us why. We agree about the rights, but on condition that no one asks us why." That sentence captures our society. We wholeheartedly believe that everyone has dignity and value. Why? We don't ask. I want to ask why. I want more of an answer than, well, just because. Now, some people say the answer to the why is what's beneficial for society. You know, that's, we, it will be good for society. Everyone believes this. And that's true, right? But we don't speak like that. When, when a woman is treated inferior to a man, where someone who has a disability is treated as subhuman, we don't say, well, that's not good for society. That's not better. We say what? That's wrong. That shouldn't happen. Right? We're appealing to a universal truth that whether it's beneficial or not, it shouldn't be the case. Now, some say, well, we've all agreed upon it as society. We, we, we agree that this should happen, that this is the case, that all people are equal, that racism is wrong that the majority of the population thinks so. But the question is this, what happens if the majority of the population didn't think so? Is it still true then? When a belief is determined by the masses, the scary thing is the masses can change. And all of a sudden believe something very different. Dehumanise people. Treat them differently. And you only have to look at modern history to know that is the case. Now, science cannot save the situation. Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, is a Jewish historian and philosopher. He says this in his book Sapiens, belief in the unique worth and rights of human beings 
has embarrassingly little in common with the scientific study of Homo sapiens. He goes on to say, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. Now, don't mishear me. The secular person, the atheist, can believe in human rights, can campaign for social justice, right, but has no real rational grounds to base the belief that every single person has dignity and value and worth. Society, science can't help in answering the why. We need a different solution. We need a declaration that is outside humanity, that is not dependent on whether it's beneficial or not, is not dependent on whether it's popular or not. And so I want to introduce you to a verse, a verse that has profoundly influenced our Western secular culture. It is a verse that was, we were all tied to, but have become adrift. And it is Genesis 1, verse 27. It says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That right at the beginning of the Bible, God introduced himself as a creator, the author of life. And so he has authority over all life that he created. And he says to the humans that he created, you are made in my image. You are made to reflect me, to be in relationship with me. And you notice in that verse, there's no conditions. It's not like, well, you made an image if you're like this, or if you do this, or if you have this. It is conditionless. This foundation that all humans have dignity and value and worth is not because humans said so, but because God said so. That men and women are equal, not because it's 2022, but because God said so. That black lives matter, not because it's a, it's a slogan, but because they matter to God. That you are valuable, whether your ability or disability, because as Martin Luther King said, there are no gradations in the image of God. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but James, that, that takes faith to believe in this. And that's not me. But let me ask you this. What takes greater faith? To believe that God made us, made us in his image, and that we have dignity and value and worth that we're special, or to believe that we're a collection of atoms evolved to survive in a universe that doesn't care about you, so you have dignity and value and worth and special? What takes more faith? I think one takes far greater faith than the other. Why needs to be asked so that the foundation, which is a beautiful foundation, remains strong and not just assumed? And the question behind this is who gives the meaning? Who gives the value and the worth to every single human? And the answer in God does. So that's the first thing, who gives meaning? The second thing is why do you mean something and not nothing? You know those... Moments when you've been in a large crowd. I know it's a distant memory. You probably have to Google, what is crowd, right? A crowd is a lots of people, right? You know those moments where you're in the theatre or in a sports game, a stadium, like there's 10,000 people. I don't know if you have these moments, but I look around and I think, who are these people? You know, where, where do they live? What do they do? Who are these moments? And then I get these existential questions, right? Like, who am I? You know, I'm, I'm so small and tiny, right? And then I look around at my family and friends and I'm like, oh, okay, no, 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 I mean something, you know what I mean. There's an interesting insurance ad which says this, sometimes we need others to realise our value because it's a big world. You are one person amongst eight billion people. You live on a planet 
that when you compare it to the rest of the universe, it's like a grain of sand on a beach. You look around and you can very easily feel meaningless and empty and who am I? But the good news is this. You do not have to go find meaning. But meaning has come to find you. Have a look at John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, you know that something is worth Something is worth something to someone, not only by what they say, but what they do. And what this verse is saying is God not only made us in his image, but the word Jesus said, I'm going to take on flesh, I'm going to become one of you. See, why are humans special? Because God became a human. That first Christmas, Jesus took on flesh not like a a costume or a party outfit, but he permanently dwelt among us. He became one of us. He experienced birth and growing up and puberty and learning and listening and pain and laughter. He was truly one of us and he permanently sided with us. It's not like he rose again, ascended to the Father and took off his flesh, been like like a jumper on a hot day. Oh, the hell with that. No, he is permanently with us as one of us, siding with us. Many years ago when I was a kid, one Christmas I got given sea monkeys, a little, a little aquarium where you would rip open a packet, pour it in some water, and there'd be some eggs. And the eggs would hatch and sea monkeys would be born, which are little krill, tiny little things, right? And they would just krill around. You have to look at a microphone, uh, magnifying glass to see them. And I'd have them there. It was kind of my first pet, right? And as I'm seeing these sea monkeys, watching them, looking at them, I think, I wonder what it's like to be a sea monkey. What would it be like to, you know, krill around all day? But never did I ever think, you know what? I would love to become a sea monkey. And if given the opportunity, say, would you like to become a sea monkey? I'm going to say, no. Right? No. And yet the God of the universe willingly chose to step into human form as a human to be little old us, tiny us. The God of the universe became oh so tiny in Jesus Christ. Now why, why would you do that? The only motivation is love a truckload of love that Jesus has for you. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. It gets even more personal. See, you and I know, if we're honest with ourselves, have done things that we should not have done. We have said things we regret. Our life is full of guilt and shame at the things we have thought, said, and done to others. And the reason why God did not just stay up in heaven, he came to earth because he, though he made us, we became what he did not intend, sinners. And though he hurt him and others, he wanted to show even still how much he loves you. Because he went to that cross and he died in your place so that you do not have to experience judgment or eternal death, but have a second chance. I don't know if you know the story of Max and his boat, where Max, a, a young boy, made one summer with his hands a small rowboat. Took him hours, took him days, took him weeks to build this little boat. 
And one day it was ready. And so he took it out on the river. And he's having a great time going back and forth, back and forth. It didn't sink. He was excited. It was hot. He was tired. So he went to the shore, tied up the boat, went under a tree, took a nap. Then while he was taking a nap, he didn't obviously tie properly because the boat became loose and slowly drifted down the river. By the time Mac woke up, the boat was gone. A couple of weeks later, he was walking past the local shop and there in that shop, he sees his boat. He runs into the shop excited, said, that's my boat, that's my boat, I made it. The shopkeeper said, it's yours for 50 bucks. So Max runs home, grabs his money, comes back and hands the $50 to the man and takes his boat and hugs it. He hugs his boat saying, you're mine twice. First I made you, then I bought you. And friends, the reason why you mean something and not nothing is because when it comes to Jesus Christ, he says, you're mine twice. First I made you, then I bought you. I redeemed you. I paid the penalty for sin, not with 50 bucks, but with his own blood. And unlike a boat which drifted down, you and I intentionally walked out, and yet that still wasn't enough. He walked towards, gave his life. You mean far more than nothing. You mean far more than even something. You are worth him giving up his life for you. We need others to realise our value. But there's only one, really, that we need. And it's not your mum. It's not your dad. It's not your best friend. It's Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing. Why you mean something and not nothing. Third and final thing, what are we meant to do? What are we meant to do? What kind of purpose do we have in the day-to-day, the week-to-week? In Mark 12, which was read to us before, one of the teachers asked Jesus a question. He says this, verse 28, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? In other words, what's the most important thing to do in life? What's the number one thing? What do we need to achieve? What's our goal? What's our purpose? And in some cultures, right, it's, it, the, the goal is to please your parents, provide for your family, honour your ancestors. In our culture, it's more do what you want to do. Do what fulfills you. Do, do whatever makes you happy. But psychologists and social workers are raising the alarm of the rise in mental health over the last 24 years on a generation that has been fed this again and again. It is not going well for us, even though we live in a healthy, wealthy country with no world wars. We need something better. We need a greater purpose because, let's face it, in our culture, it is not going well. Jesus offers an alternative. He says this, verse 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and... Love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandments greater than these. Love God, love your neighbour. You know what's missing from that? You. There's no love yourself. You will hear that in our culture again and again and again, but not from the lips of Jesus. Now, it's assumed, right, love your neighbour as yourself. 
The assumption is you're very good at that, right? Treat others the way that you naturally treat yourself. Even if you have warped mind, warped thinking, right? We naturally think of ourselves first, even though it might not be in the healthiest of ways, right? We are me-centred creatures. In the book Purpose Driven Life, which is probably one of those popular books outside of the Bible when it comes to Christian books, the opening sentence of that book is this. It's not about you. Life is not about you. Betty White recently passed away. And I've been watching a few interviews with her. And I'm noticing a trend when someone gets to 80, 90 in the celebrity. The questions people ask is, what's the secret to a long life? What gets you through? What do you do? What do you achieve? Now, I notice people are asking older people. They're never asking the Zac Afrons or the Nicki Minajs, right? Why? Because you know experience counts. When it comes to Jesus, he has the experience. He made life. He knows how to live well in the life that he's given you. And he's saying the purpose of your life is not for you ultimately to be happy, to fulfill your dreams, to be about you. The purpose of your life is to love others. The purpose of your life is not to do whatever you want to do. The purpose of your life is to do what God has called you to do. And that is love him with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Let me flesh this out a bit more, right? When you find your ultimate purpose, your ultimate meaning in life, in anything but God, uh, let's say your career, your kids, uh, sex, body image, wealth, status, you, you take those things, you say, you know what, this is where I find my ultimate meaning. This is, makes me me. This is what I love with all my heart, soul and mind, right? The problem is you will either be crushed by it or you will crush others. Give me two examples. If kids are your ultimate meaning in life, that is makes you you, then you will either crush them with an expectation they cannot bear or you will be crushed by them because they will do things that will profoundly hurt you. They might move away, they might do things you don't like, and you will be devastated. If your career is what makes you you, then you will crush others to make sure your job, your career excels and sells or you will be devastated when it goes or changes or is not the way you planned. You were created with a purpose, friends. Just like everything else, you were created with a purpose. And that purpose is to find your ultimate meaning, your satisfaction, your purpose in God and God alone. To love him with all your strength, soul and mind, not anything else. And when you get that right, you can enjoy every other thing as a gift. Find little purpose, little meanings in it not ultimate. Because the reality is every good thing that you have, it will go. It will disappoint. It will leave. And then so will your meaning in life. But God will not. Because he is not finite, he is infinite. He is not limited, he is limitless. And he will not go anywhere. And so too your meaning. But you know, it's not just vertical, it's horizontal as well, because notice it says, love your neighbour as yourself. 
If you go through this life thinking, me, 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 you'll have a bit of meaning purpose for a moment, but it will evaporate like a drop of water on a 40-degree day, right? If you go through rather this life thinking others, 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 you will be met with a more fulfilling, satisfying, joyful life than the alternative. Because when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive, he wasn't joking. It's no wonder that the people in your life, right, those who volunteer, those who serve more, are happier people. Those in marriages who put their spouse's needs before their own have satisfying marriages than those who don't. Those who have healthier friendships are those who are not thinking, why aren't my friends meeting my needs, but rather those who are thinking, how can I meet the needs of my friends? A purposeful life has very little to do with extrovert, introvert, ability, wealth. It has more to do with do you see God's purpose for your life? And it is not about you. We're given maybe 60 to 80 years of life at best. It's not much and it's a lot. What are you meant to do with that? the one who created your life, the one who knows he knew you before your parents did. And he knows how many hours, how many minutes you've got left on this planet. He says the purpose of your life is not to acquire, is not to get, is not to hold on. No, no, the purpose of your life is to love God and love your neighbour. That, and that alone, is the good, meaningful life that God intended for you. As the band comes up, let me talk about athletes for a moment. Because athletes, I think, tap into meaning and purpose in a way that is extreme. Because they experience the highest of highs, the gold, the grand final, the fame, the glory. And they experience the lowest of lows, the injuries, the career-ending moments, and they're forgotten. Betty Cuthbert is an athlete who died a couple of years ago four-time Olympic gold medalist in 100, 200 metres in relays. And I bet in those moments, like any other athlete, you know, when they're on the gold podium, they're thinking, this is it. I've made it. Is there meaning to life? You bet, and this is it, right? But not Betty. Betty says this, said this, my salvation from Jesus was a free gift. I didn't have to work for it. And it is far better than any gold medal that I've ever won. She knew that you do not go find meaning. That you do not get meaning. But you receive it. You receive it from the Lord Jesus. And so you go out and live a purposeful, God-honoring life to the day you die.